0: It's been lovely to be here this morning in the very presence of our Lord. And um, this morning, I'd like to speak on the psalm that I read uh, first thing this morning, which was Psalm 31, um, more specifically the first five verses. So I'll read those again for us now. In you, O Lord, I put my trust. Let me never be ashamed. Deliver me in your righteousness. Bow down your ear to me. Deliver me speedily. Be my rock of refuge, a fortress of defence to save me. For you are my rock and my fortress. Therefore, for your name's sake, lead me and guide me. Pull me out of the net which they have secretly laid for me. For you are my strength. Into your hand I commit my spirit. You have redeemed me, O Lord God of truth. I find these few short verses very familiar, very reminiscent of prayers that I have prayed or that I've heard being prayed in this place when you ask something of God and almost answer yourself straight away in these verses David asks God to be his refuge and then tells God that he is his refuge he asks God to strengthen him and then tells God that he is his strength it's like he's saying why am I even asking this of you I already know that you are providing for me So these few short verses, if nothing else, are evidence that sometimes we need to pray just to remind ourselves of everything that God is to us and has done for us and has given to us and promised us for the future. This morning, though, I'd like to focus on the five things that David asks of God. Hear me, save me, lead me, guide me and strengthen me. Requests I know that I have made of God at least once in the past. And I'm sure that I'm not alone in that. So firstly this morning, hear me. Something you may or may not know about me is I absolutely hate not being listened to. It really winds me up. I hate it when people talk over me or when they ask me questions about something I've literally just said. And I could go on about it, but I won't. But the fact is I hate not being listened to. And sometimes it can feel like God isn't listening to you. How many times have we prayed the same thing over and over again and yet here we are still waiting? And Hannah felt that way. She refers to her praise to God for a son as a petition which springs to mind images of her spending most nights before she goes to sleep on her knees praying that God would open her womb and bless her with a son. Years went by, years and years where she had to watch Penina, her husband's other wife, by child after child after child, and still, though she wanted one so badly, she never got one. Was God ignoring her? Was her prayer being drowned out by the hundreds and thousands of other prayers that were being raised at the same time? Or was God hearing her and saying, "Not yet. Just wait. When the time is right." Hannah finds herself praying to God again for a son, and this time. She promises that if she were to have a son, she would dedicate his life to God. And that, it seems, is what God was waiting for. What he knew would eventually happen. And not long after then, Hannah falls pregnant with a baby boy, whom she calls Samuel, which means God has heard. Now, I don't know if you've ever seen the classic Jim Carrey film, Bruce Almighty, but it's about a guy who cries out to God and accuses him of essentially being rubbish at his job. And so God lets Bruce have a go to see what it's like. And for a while, Bruce enjoys being able to walk on water, split his soup in two, and get to the front of traffic jams. But then the voices start, praise, millions of them. And he tries to think of a way to get through them, all of which fail disastrously. But eventually he realizes that all he has to do is listen to them. When Bruce was playing at God, He couldn't distinguish one voice from another. There was a racket going on in his head, a mishmash of different voices, some praying for really big, important things, and others for tiny, inconsequential things, and everything in between. That isn't the case with God. There are more people on earth today than they have ever been, and God can hear them all. And not only that, but listens to every single person's prayer, both the ones that we say with our mouths and the silent prayers we hold in our hearts. When I pray, God hears me. He isn't going to talk over me, and he isn't going to ask me to say something again because he blanked out. He is so unbelievably attentive to everything that I have to say. 1 Peter 3 verse 12 says, For the eyes of the Lord are on the righteous, and his ears are open to their prayer. What God is listening out for the most What he wants all men, women, boys and girls to say is our second thing this morning that David says. Save me. I don't know what David was going through when he wrote this psalm, what sort of adversity that he was facing when he called out for help. But what I do know is that God is there ready and mighty to save his people from any situation, however big or however small. When David was young and protecting his sheep, God was there to save him from the poor of the lion and the poor of the bear. And when he was facing Goliath, God was faithful to save him from the hand of the Philistine giant. God was there to save Noah from the flood, to save Jonah from the belly of the whale, to save Joseph from jail, to save the Israelites from Egypt, to save Elijah, the widow, and her son from starvation, to save Elisha from the torment of youth, to save Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego from the fiery furnace, to save Daniel from the mouths of lions, and that's just a selection from the Old Testament. God has a track record of saving his people. Now, I thank God that I've never been in a position in my life where I've had to be uh, crying out to be saved. I've never been kidnapped or stuck in a well or stranded on a mountaintop or drowning in the sea or anything like that. I've never had to ask God to save me from any of those kinds of things. But as I said at the start, I have said all of these things at least once in my life. I did cry out to the Lord to save me once. Not from a flood, not from the belly of a great fish, not from imprisonment or slavery or starvation or torment or torture. I called out to the Lord once to save me from my sins. Mm-hmm. Now let's imagine for a moment that it's from a burning building that I needed saving. I cry out for help. What happens then? Probably nobody hears me, so I shout again. Maybe this time someone hears me, but they can't get to me. So they have to form the fire brigade. They ring 999, speak to the operator and tell them all they can. The operator will then deploy a team of firefighters to come to my aid. The fire engine has to manoeuvre through all the traffic on the roads as fast as it can to get to me. All the while, I'm still stuck in this burning building with the flames getting closer and the smoke slowly rid in the room of oxygen. At last they arrive, but now they have to stop and think. What's the best course of action? Is this building solid enough to have high-pressure water shot at it, and to have men and women crashing through it? They decide it is. So the water's turned on, but, the fire is going to t- but, but it's going to take some time. The fire has plenty of fuel to keep it going for the time being. Meanwhile, some firefighters have entered the building to look for me. They're slowly making their way through each room individually, assessing and acting accordingly. Eventually, they find me, trapped under a fallen beam in a room filling with smoke and flames. Again, they have to decide what's the safest course of action. They decide to lift the beam and carry me out and deal with the injuries there. More people are needed to lift the beam, but they manage it and they get me out. I'm saved from the burning building, but I'm covered in burns, unable to breathe, and my body is broken. So only the beginning of my recovery. There was so much that had to be done in between my asking to be saved and me actually being saved. When I asked God to save me from my sins, I was saved in that instant. There was nothing that needed to be done in between because everything had already been done in advance. He had already put everything in place. He was prepared for this eventuality. Before I was even born or thought of by any human walking the earth, God had planned, set in motion, and completed a perfect plan of salvation for me. He'd done it so that one day, when I asked to be saved from my sins, he would have already done everything that needed to be done, so that I wouldn't have to wait and suffer, but rather I could immediately bask in my new position as a new creation in Christ Jesus. I don't know what the future holds for me and I don't know if a day will come in the future when I will have to cry out to God to save me from a situation but what I do know is who holds the future and who holds my future who has planned and formed and ensured my future and I also know that thanks to God's saving and keeping power however bumpy or smooth (coughs) the path will be it will end with me in heaven with my brothers and sisters in Christ seeing our Saviour face to face. God save saving and keeping power. Mm. I said that i only asked God to save me once because that's all that I needed to do. Mm. John 10 verse 27 to 30 says, My sheep hear my voice and I know them and they follow me and I give them eternal life and they shall never perish. Neither shall anyone snatch them out of my hand. Mm. My Father who has given them to me is greater than all. And no one is able to snatch them out of my father's hand. I and my father are one. Safe and secure in the hands of God the Father. That's where I was put when I asked to be saved from my sins. And to paraphrase Jesus, I'd like to see anyone try and get me out. God hears us and he saves us. And the next thing David asks of God is that he would lead and guide him. Now this I'm constantly asking God to do for me. In the Bible, we have lots of of, examples of God's guidance in the lives of his people. We can think of Abraham uh, going out of his native country, not knowing where he was going, being wholly dependent on the guidance of God in Genesis 12, of Moses and the children of Israel being led by a pillar of cloud by day and and of fire by night in Exodus 13, and of course Joshua in Joshua In the New Testament, one of the most striking examples is that of Philip, who was guided of the Lord to leave Samaria and to win the eunuch to Christ in Acts 8. I'd like to quickly look at the nature of God's guidance and also the method of God's guidance in our lives. Psalm 16 verse 11 says, You will show me the path of my life. In your presence is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. The first thing to note about the nature of God's guidance is that it is divine guidance. That is to emphasise its quality. There is no scope for error or mistakes. The psalm says that in God's presence we have fullness of joy. Not a bit, not a lot, but fullness and the pleasures are forevermore. With God all things are perfect in abundance. And that goes for his guidance as well. The secret to receiving divine guidance is in the guide. The second thing to note is that God's guidance is clear. Psalm 27 verse 11 says, Teach me your way, O Lord, and lead me in a straight path because of my oppressors. The psalmist is asking God to lead him on a straight path, a clear, easy to follow path. And then Proverbs 3 verse 6 says, in all your ways, submit to him and he will make your path straight. God is more anxious than we are that we should follow the right path. If we submit to him, he will give us clear guidance. The third thing to notice is that God's guidance is both continual and gradual. Psalm 48 verse 14 says, For this God is our God forever and ever. He will be our guide even to the end. And Psalm 37, 23 says, The Lord makes firm the steps of the one who delights in him. God's plans for us stretch into eternity. And whilst he knows the full picture, we are just given a step-by-step instruction. God's guidance can also be strange to us. When the Israelites left Egypt, we're told in Exodus 13 that God didn't lead them to the promised land by the quickest route, but rather through the desert towards the Red Sea. And this seems strange to us, but God has his reasons for doing everything. He didn't want to take them on the quickest route because they may have faced battles and wanted to go back to Egypt where at least they didn't have to fight. Instead, he takes them the longer route and uses his time to test and try their faith and build them up and teach them. With us, we can also wonder why we are in certain positions, a position that we never imagined ourselves to be in and wonder why God has placed us here. Or maybe you can even look back in your life and see the route you've taken and think, how strange that you have to go through all of that to get where you are now. But maybe you wouldn't be where you are now if you hadn't have taken that route. The next thing about God's guidance is that it's individual. And that is what I have to constantly remind myself of. When I look around and see people going in different directions to me, experiencing things I want to experience and living lives that I want to live, I wonder to myself and to God why I'm not on the same path. And I'm reminded that whilst I am only one of billions on, the, on this earth, God has a plan for me, Sophie Gregory. He doesn't have the same plan for all Welsh Christians or the same plan for all Christian girls born in the 90s. We each have our own individual plan laid out by God in which he will guide us. And the final thing to notice about God's guidance is that it's comprehensive he hasn't just got his hand on the milestone events and as long as he gets us to hit everyone then it's all good he's interested in every minute detail of our lives and he will guide us through every waking second so that's the nature of God of guidance now for the method will he guide us by his spirit John 16, 12-13 says I still have many things to say to you But you cannot bear them now. However, when he, the spirit of truth, has come, he will guide you into all truth. For he will not speak on his own authority, but whatever he hears, he will speak. And he will tell you things to come. He guides us by his eye. Psalm 32 verse 8 says, I will instruct you and teach you in the way that you should go. I will guide you with my eye. Back then, when a horse threw a banquet, he would sit at the head of the table and all the servants would be around and they would keep their eyes firmly fixed on him because he would direct them with his eyes. And it's equally with us. If we want to know how God is guiding us, we have to keep our eyes firmly fixed upon him. He guides us by his servants. Proverbs 11:14 says, where there is no counsel, the people fall. But in the multitude of counselors, there is safety. And this is why fellowship is so important because we can talk with one another and share with one another and help guide one another in the paths that we should go. God also guides us by his providences. Isaiah 30 verse 21 says, you ears used to hear a word behind you saying, This is the way, walking it, walk in it. Whenever you turn to the right hand or whenever you turn to the left. Sometimes God will work in our lives, open certain doors and close others and compel us to go in one direction and not the other. But but the most important tool that God uses is his word. Psalm 119 verse 105 says, Your word is a lamp to my feet and a light to my path. God's word, the Bible, gives us clear answers to some things, general principles about other things, and also warns us about lots of things. We need to know our Bibles and understand understand God's word to help us understand God's guidance. And finally, David asks God to strengthen him. In reality, he doesn't so much ask God to strengthen him, but affirms that God is his strength. What a wonderful and blessed position he and we as believers are in this morning. A position such that rather than asking for strength from God, We know that God is our strength. We don't really have to ask God for peace. Because he is our peace. He is our joy. He is love. He is everything that we have needed or ever will need. He won't just give us a portion of strength. He will be our strength. Perfect, divine strength is mine because I know God. And do you know what else I don't have to ask God for? Righteousness. In order to be saved. I don't have to ask him to help me behave better. Think better thoughts. Do better deeds. Instead he is our righteousness. I will be welcomed into heaven. Not because I've tried my best. To live a life pleasing to God. But rather because I'm clothed with not mine. But Jesus' perfect spotless robe of righteousness. And I'll not only be allowed in. But welcomed in. With open arms. So those are the things that David on this occasion, and we on other occasions, have asked of God. But what are we going to do in return? Well, let's go back to our verses. Our first verse says, In you, O Lord, I put my trust. And our last verse, verse 5 says, Into your hands I commit my spirit. That's it. That's our end of the bargain. We simply entrust him with our spirits, with our lives. With the very yeah. essence of who we are. And when we do that, he upholds his end of the bargain. He will hear us, he will save us, he will lead us, he will guide us, and he will strengthen us. Yeah. Verse 5 goes on to say, For you have redeemed me. Mm-hmm. The doorway into this relationship, the only reason that David can receive all these blessings from God in exchange for trusting God with his life, is because God has made a way for that to be possible. We too are redeemed. And if you need a little reminder of when that was, let me read the beginning of verse 5 to you again. Into your hands I commit my spirit. Sound familiar? I actually read it as my word, which was a nice coincidence. Luke 23, verse 44 to 46. Now it was about the sixth hour, and there was darkness over all the earth, until the ninth hour. Then the sun was darkened, and the veil of the temple was torn in two. And when Jesus had cried out with a loud voice, he said, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. Having said this, he breathed his last. Jesus said these very words when he was hanging on the cross of Calvary, bearing the weight of the sins of the whole world, rendering me and whosoever is to believe redeemed, redeemed by the blood of the Lamb. When Jesus was on the cross, he experienced something that we had never experienced. He was forsaken by God, completely and utterly alone. No one to hear him, no one to save him, no one to lead or guide him and no one to strengthen him. But when he said those final words, when his spirit was released from his body and he breathed his last, he was reunited with the Father, no longer forsaken, but in a beautiful, perfect relationship. This morning, once again, I thank God for the cross and I thank Jesus that he was willing to endure so much on my behalf. I'm thankful that he made a way whereby I need never experience what it's like to be forsaken by God. He made a way for me and for you and for the whole world to enter into a perfect, beautiful relationship with God the Father. He tore the veil of the temple in two. He redeemed us and now we can entrust him with our lives and be confident that he will not only hear, say, lead, guide and strengthen us, but he will be our all in all, the all-sufficient one, our Lord and our Saviour, Jesus Christ. Amen. Amen. Amen.